Okay, Mark chapter 12. Let's uh, pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for these sections that we've been going through where Jesus is tested. We thank you, Lord, that he was found to be who he claimed to be, without blemish, fully man, fully God, our Messiah, fit to die in our place for our sins. We thank you that he did. We thank you that he died, that he rose again, and that we are saved through faith in him. Amen. Okay, Mark 12. So just again, as a reminder, as we come into this, we've only got a couple of weeks left in Mark, and uh, sorry, Mark 12. And uh, what we have here is we have this section where, starting from chapter 11, Jesus came into Jerusalem on a donkey, fulfilling Zechariah 9. And in doing so, he uh, presented himself in the temple on the 10th of Nisan, which was the date, which you hopefully regulars know by now, was the date that the uh, Passover lamb was presented in the temple to make sure it was without blemish and appropriately suitable for sacrifice. And so Christ, being the one who is going to be the Passover lamb for all time, he presents himself in the temple, and then he is tested like the lamb was tested to see if he is without blemish, without fault, without sin. And in chapter 11, the, uh, the uh, temple system as a whole is condemned by Christ, and he rebukes the leaders within the temple, he condemns the temple system and he clearly brings it to an end. It's about to come to an end, the entire temple system. And in chapter 12, we've seen him respond to different tests from different groups. The Pharisees and Herodians in uh, verses uh, 13 and following. Then the Sadducees last week in verses 18 and following. And now in verse 28, it is the scribes who are going to come to him, the experts in the law, the experts in Mosaic law, who are going to come to him and test him one last time. And this is uh, a fascinating one. Then let's have a look. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Now, I want us to notice a few things here. This is where it's really handy not to look at other gospel accounts, and it's helpful to look at Mark and the distinctives of Mark and this narrative that he is telling us. As Mark presents it to us, we have one of the scribes come up, and we're told specifically that he heard them disputing. So there they are giving him questions to try and trick him. And rather than here with this, this last test, rather than this being a group of scribes who come to try and test him and trick him again, Mark presents it as being a single scribe who has heard him being tested by the others and has been impressed. He answered them well. When they tried to trick him with the question about tax, he answered them well. When they tried to trick him with an answer about resurrection and marriage, he answered them well. And so this question is coming from this individual scribe, not so much as another little trick question to try and catch him out. It's come from an individual. It's come from an individual whose entire life is given over to studying the intricate details of Mosaic law. And Jesus has responded to the question about tax. He's responded to the Sadducees, by, by giving answers from the law. Do you remember when we did that last time? His clever answer was that he didn't simply say to them, oh look, here are some verses from Job or from Isaiah or from Daniel that prove the resurrection is going, there's going to be a resurrection. What he did is he pointed them to the books of Moses because they were the only books that the Sadducees believed in. So this expert in the law was impressed in Jesus' handling of the law. That's what he did. He was supposed to be the expert, and he's going, well, this guy's pretty good. So he's aware of what Jesus has claimed about himself. He's aware of the, the furore around Jesus, the commotion, the kerfuffle that he's caused. 
And it's almost as if this scribe is saying, so is he really someone who's faithful to the law? Because of course the Pharisees have been teaching that he's not. The Pharisees have been teaching that Jesus is unfaithful to the law, that he hasn't kept it. And Jesus has meticulously shown that he is pro-law, pro-the law of Moses, but he's anti-Pharisaic interpretation of the law. Now where this scribe comes in is that the scribe isn't so much interested in the Pharisaic interpretations in so much as he's interested in the law itself. And this is where he has some common ground with Jesus. And so... It seems to me that from this initial verse that the question that comes from this scribe is a genuine question. It's a question that is provoked by seeing how well Jesus has answered, how well Jesus knows the law. And so, he, yes, he is testing him still, but it's not a contrived test. It's, this, it's the expert in the law saying, does this man really believe the law? Is he really faithful to the law? Is what has been said of him untrue? And so he asks him, which commandment is most important of all? And in doing that, he's not simply asking a simple question, which is a, hey, give me the verse of the most important part. What he's doing is he's checking to see that he understands the law as a whole. And by asking this question, as we'll see, it shows that he does understand the law as a whole. And it shows that he is a true worshipper of the true God. So Jesus answers and says, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So he asks Jesus for one thing and Jesus gives him two things. Buy one, get one free. That's what he's doing here. He's giving him an extra answer. So, let's have a look at what he does. The first thing he does here in answering is he, he's, he gives him the answer to the question he wants, which is, what is the most important commandment? And for this, he turns to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. Now, there's not a lot there in context to help us, so we're not going to turn there because I want to turn to the other one and look at a broader context. But what, he, what the verse says here is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. There are two words in Hebrew for one. There is one that is a, a complete one and one that can be a compound one, one made up of different things. And of course, it's the latter here. The Jews will try and use this verse to teach against a trinity, uh, a, a, a doctrine of the trinity, but the, 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 the word there itself does not force such an interpretation. And this is the verse that was known by the Jews as the Shema. The Shema was a verse that was learnt, memorized from the youngest of ages. It was their equivalent, if you don't want to kind of understand in a cultural sense, it was their equivalent of John 3.16. You ever see those cute little videos where a three-year-old has been taught to recite John 3.16? Hasn't got a clue what it means, but it says it verbatim and, and says what it means. And, and, and uh, you know, it's the first Bible verse that people tend to learn and know because it's central to the gospel. Well, for the Jew, their equivalent was Deuteronomy 6 and verse 4. It was the Shema. And here, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And so there is this, uh, this important thing for them to understand that there is one God. And you remember the history of Israel. Think of all the false gods and the false deities they were tempted with, that they fell in with, that they worshipped, that they added to Yahweh. This is a clear statement. Look, you have got one God here, guys. Israel has one God. Israel doesn't have Yahweh, and then when there's a bad harvest, starts worshipping Baal as well. Israel doesn't have Yahweh and then pick up another God from another nation so that the nation doesn't destroy you. You have one God and you trust in him and you call out to him to protect you from destruction. And yet Israel compromised. And from the very beginning, it was the clear statement, you have one God, here is your God. And he goes on in, this, in, in, in uh, Deuteronomy 6 and verse 5, and you shall love the Lord your God, you shall love Yahweh, your God, with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, 
and with all your strength. Folks, this is as basic and essential as you can get, and you can understand why the whole of the law revolves around this. I go so far as to say it goes beyond Mosaic law. The, what Jesus is stating here are universal truths that are true of God's law in every form. True of God's law prior to the giving of the Mosaic law, and true of God's law after the ending of Mosaic law. He's saying here simply that we have a single God. There is one God. There aren't multiple gods doing multiple things. There's one God doing one thing. There's the God who created the heavens and the earth, the God who created us, the God who is in control. There is one God. And therefore, because there is but one God, our duty is to love Him. To love Him, to serve Him, to dedicate ourselves to Him. With all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. With all of our being. With all that we feel, all that we think, all that we are, and every ounce of strength that we're given. It's interesting to me that in Matthew's account the word strength is omitted, but Mark does not allow for such an omission. Mark, as you recall, has been interested in the theme of strength and might right the way through his gospel. Jesus was the one who was mightier than John the Baptist, who was to come after him. Jesus was the one who bound up the strong, the mighty man. There was Jesus resisting the temptations of Satan in the wilderness. He is the one who showed his might by casting out demons, showing his power over the demonic realm. Jesus is the mighty one in Mark's gospel, more so than any of the other gospels. And our correct response to the mighty one is to love him with all of our might and all of our strength. We're not as strong as he is, but with what strength we have, we love him. We devote ourselves to him. I was talking about this earlier, funnily enough, today. And with a friend. And you probably have friends like this as well. People who are Christianized. Maybe they grew up in church. Maybe their family were Christians. Maybe they attended church for a period of time. Maybe they even encouraged other people to come to church. Maybe they talked about Jesus a lot. You see, being Christianized is not the same as being saved. Jesus made it clear. Remember the passage just a few chapters ago with the rich young ruler? You have that guy and he says, yeah, I'm interested in you, Jesus. Jesus says, okay, leave it all behind. Come follow me. And that's tough. And, and as I said to you at the time, that there's, two, there's two mistakes we make with that passage. Mistake number one is that we think that everybody has to give away all their money and go to follow Jesus. That's not what the passage says. It says it's what he has to do. Because that was his God. That was his other God. Not the one. Had to leave aside his idol. But you see, the other mistake we make is we go the other way. And we say, oh, it doesn't apply to us at all. But it does apply to us. We have to cast aside all other gods. We have to pursue God and love him with every ounce of our being. It, it doesn't matter if you, you know, if you teach at a school, if you work in a store, if you, you know, work at McDonald's, if you're a pastor of a church, if you, if you serve your community, or whether you're a mother or a home. It doesn't matter what you do. But everything that you do in the midst of that, you are God's. You belong to him and you seek to love him where you are. In, in the realm that you're in, in the job that you're in, in the home that you're in, you seek to follow God, to love him with all of your being. It doesn't mean that you don't do anything else other than Christian things. It means that when you do other things, you do them for the Lord. You do them the way he would want you to do them. You do them for his glory. You do them with him in mind. But your life is devoted to him. You entrust yourself to him. You know, we've talked about this multiple times in our studies in Philippians. If I do this, and if I do that correctly, then this I might be taken advantage of, or this bad thing might happen to me. Entrust yourself to God. 
You have one God. Love him. Serve him. All your heart, all your mind, all your trust, all your strength, all of it you are. And I think the trust is a crucial thing here because it says with all of your soul. That's you, that's the essence, that's your being, that's your life. That's you placing yourself in his hands and saying, here's my life. Do you remember Paul in Philippians 1? He says, for me, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. He said it was better for him to die, but it's not up to him. Here's my life, God. I'd much rather die, but I guess I'm going to stay here because there's people that need to be served, and this is the area in which you've got me serving. It's not, it's not for me, it's for you. You decide, I'm yours, I do what you want me to do. That's discipleship. You see, when Jesus comes along and he says to his disciples, he says, hey, follow me. There's nothing new there. <laughs> there's, there's nothing new. It's not like they're suddenly saying, wow, this is a pretty high standard he's holding us to. These are people who grew up memorizing the Shema. These are kids who were taught to recite it twice daily. They would recite it in the morning and they would recite it in the evening every day. If you say the same thing every morning and every evening, from, from the youngest memory of your childhood, right the way through your life. Oh, and by the way, when you're about to drop down dead, you know what it is that you're supposed to say with your dying breath? You got it. It's the Shema. You're going to know it well, aren't you? Repetition, repetition, repetition. So these, these people who were called by Jesus to follow him, they, they weren't shocked by the standard of discipleship. The only issue was this, is following Jesus, following Yahweh. That's the only issue. That's not to say that they understood immediately that he was Yahweh, because they didn't. It's to say that they knew he was from God, at least, and following him was part of their devotion to God, that God had sent him, that he was following him wasn't going astray, as the Pharisees would suggest. So the, the standard of discipleship wasn't, wasn't the shocker. The shocker was that it was following Jesus. So Jesus is tapping in here to the very essence of Jewish culture. Now, I don't want to lose my flow too much of the passage and, and what Jesus is doing and saying here, but I do want to say this. We live in a very different culture. We live in a very different culture. We live in a culture where we consider it a bad thing to raise children to do anything other than make their own minds up. Do you think Jesus would agree with such a statement? <laughs> you got the Shema. Here, hear, O Israel, the Lord is your God, the Lord is one. You're going to say that every day, twice a day, every day of your life, right the way through. There is no chance that Jesus would say, let people make their own minds up. And as you continue in the context of Deuteronomy, he goes on to speak about the, the teaching of children. And so, you have here um, a cultural context that is alien to us. And also in the sense of memorization. Most kids don't memorize stuff unless they have to do it to pass an exam, or unless it happens to be the lyrics of their favorite pop song. Then they remember them real well, really well. But memorization of scripture, you know, I just... I've been reading through uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum's biography and just, I keep getting convicted on this one, you know, just, just how the Jewish culture, they memorize stuff. They memorize stuff, you know. I mean, for a Christian to memorize John 3.16 is okay. That's kind of normal. That's not strange. But what about memorizing John 3? That would be a bit weird. What about memorizing John? That's the kind of memorization that the Jewish children were doing. That's how well they knew their law. And it seems to me that there is a cultural gap that we have today 
when we call people to God, sometimes people are happy to hear a message of salvation from sin. But they don't like the message of repentance. They don't like the message of turning. Because the concept of committing is a concept that our society as a whole rejects. And, uh, and that is a sad thing. And it means that the challenge is greater for us because we come to faith from cultures that are less in this regard. And therefore, the idea of complete devotion is one that is fairly alien to us. And the command is a command that is the most important, as Jesus says, in the whole of the, whole of the Old Testament. The command to love God with every single ounce of our being, holding nothing back. A greater challenge today than it ever was, but one that remains. Now Jesus just doesn't end there. What he also does is he gives the second most important commandment. Now, he's not asked for this. Bear this in mind. He isn't asked for this, this second most important commandment, just simply which is the most important. But he gives the second one. We'll have a look at why. If you turn with me, he quotes from uh, Leviticus 19. So let's go to Leviticus 19, if for no other reason that we rarely turn to Leviticus. So it's kind of fun, isn't it, to go there occasionally? Leviticus 19. The quotation that he gives is a very well-known one. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I think the problem sometimes is that, again, maybe it's a cultural thing, but we're not quite sure what that means or what it extends to sometimes. And certainly the Pharisees were, were very good at wriggling out of this, as we'll see as we close the chapter next time. But what we have in, in uh, Leviticus 19 is we have the statement in verse 18, and the second half of verse 18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You have that at the end of an extended section, and it's a summary statement that sums up what's preceded it. So if we go back to verse 4, we'll see some of the things that were practically part of loving your neighbor. Verse 4 says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner, for I am the Lord your God. In other words, this. If you're a traveler and you go into a town, and you don't live there, you don't know anybody, what do you eat? If you're a poor person, if you're a cripple, if you're unable to work, if you've got very low amounts of money and you're struggling to get by, there's no welfare check going around. So what do you do? Well, the landowners are commanded not to harvest to the edge, but to leave a little bit of harvest at the edge so the poor can come and gather for free. And I think we sometimes don't understand. There are... I've got to be careful here. I don't like politics in the pulpit. So I've got to be very careful how I word this. But sometimes Christian culture in America has become so politicized that the concept of not providing for others has become almost a Christian thing. Well, we'll pay our way and other people can pay their way. Now, I'm not making a statement about politics in general. I'm not making a statement about any particular part of life in general. I'm simply saying this. It was part of God's heart that people all people left a portion for the poor. This is not a concept that's come along with modern taxation and modern government. It's something that was in God's heart. And so it was that, that uh, grapes should be left on the vine, grapes that fell to the ground weren't to be picked up, but there was to be a residue, there was to be leftovers from all of these crops so that people who were poor, people who were traveling through, so that people had enough. It was important that those who had plenty used their plenty to ensure that those who didn't had enough. Not that they had plenty, but that they had enough. And that's a key distinction. No one was to go 
starving. Then he says in verse 11, you shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane, profane the name of your God. Notice there that what he's doing is he's gathering together several of the commandments that you'll be familiar with, many you know, from the Ten Commandments, and he's putting them together in the context of how you treat your neighbor. So if you steal, obviously what you're doing in stealing is you're taking something from somebody else, and that affects your neighbor. You don't want to deal falsely with someone because that would be harming your neighbor as well. And equally with lying, you shall not lie. Now, notice what he then does. He then pulls together something which looks like it affects God rather than the neighbor predominantly, but yet it is used to refer to the neighbor. He says, you shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. Now, can you see how he structured this? What he's done is he's taken something that seems to be saying, don't do this, you know, don't take God's name in vain. That's a command that affects God, right? No, he's saying it's more than that. He's saying, look, you mustn't lie to your neighbor. You mustn't represent something falsely to your neighbor. Okay? You mustn't... Uh, misrepresent to your neighbor, okay? And when you swear by God's name falsely, you're misrepresenting to your neighbor, but you're doing it in the name of God. I swear by Yahweh that I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not conning you here. I, I guess the modern day equivalent, at least when I was growing up as a kid in England, was I swear on my mother's life. We used, to, we used to say that, that was our expression. You know, because of course, no one's going to want their mother dead. That's the kind of thinking, and therefore, well, I swear on my mother's, oh, he really must mean it. And, and so it is, if you say, well, I, 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 swear, I swear by Yahweh that this is true, then what you're doing in misrepresenting is, yes, you're bringing the name of God into disrepute, but what you're doing is you're giving a surefire commitment to somebody and then letting them down. And so it's a sin against your neighbor as well. That's the point of it being listed here. Then verse uh, 13, you shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. Notice the linking with oppression and robbing. Robbing, we think of robbing as being taking what doesn't belong to you, but that's stealing. I think the word here is slightly different. And the implication in context is that when you oppress somebody, when you don't pay somebody enough, when you uh, treat someone unfairly, when you put undue pressure and stress upon them, then you are robbing them. What, the way you're treating them is unfair. They're not getting their worth. That's the concept being communicated here. The wages of a hired servant shall not remain with you all night until the morning. Other, you see what's going on there? Well, I'll hang on to the money a bit longer and I'll pay you a little bit later hanging on to the interest, hanging on to the money for as long as possible, paying as late as possible. These are practices that are common practices in business after business today. Don't do that. Treat your neighbor well. Love your neighbor. Um, verse 14, you shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am Yahweh. In other words, don't, don't treat someone less because they're disabled in some way. They can't see, they can't hear. Go out of your way for them. Go the extra mile for them. Why? Because they can do something to you? No, they can't do anything to you. The deaf man and the blind man were the bottom of society. They can't do anything at all. That's why people don't bother looking after them. Because what can they do? So, the Bible says, don't fear them, fear me, fear God. You treat the vulnerable well, not because the vulnerable can't get, can get you back, because they can't, but because they're vulnerable, it's as if God's saying, I've got their back. So you treat them well, or you'll have me, me to deal with. And again, we again see Christians often doing that uh, in society when the government steps in and says, well, I'll protect the weak and the disenfranchised. 
This is a biblical concept, that the weak and disenfranchised, the disabled, that those who are most likely to be trod upon get protected so that they're not robbed and they're not oppressed. That's, that's the principle behind it. Um, verse 15, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to, the poor, uh, partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. So you're not going to give favors to someone because they're rich or because they're poor. You're going to treat people fairly in court. That's what you're going to do. You're going to, the court is a place where justice is given, and that's the nature of God. God punishes those who do wrong, and he rewards those who do good. That's the nature of God, to be fair and just. And therefore, in a court where we're representing God, we are to be just. So in righteousness you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. So you're not going to go around saying negative things about people that you don't know, and, you're not going, and you are uh, not going to stand up against the life of someone. So you're not going to, when context of them being slandered, you're not going to take a stand against them because of what you have heard. In other words, they need a fair hearing. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. So, you're not going to, if someone's got an issue, then you deal with that issue. You don't just, you know, clam up and, you know, hide bitterness and hatred away in your heart, because otherwise you would sin because of their sin. So, if someone treats you badly, you address it. You don't not address it, because if you don't address it, then you end up sinning yourself by your own hatred and bitterness. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So, you know, within the tribe of, of Israel, the sons of your own people, there shouldn't be bitterness, there shouldn't be grudges, there shouldn't be one paying back another. Why? Because you love each other. That's how it should be. And if that's how it should be in Israel, how much more so in the church? No? And he says, you love your neighbor as yourself. Why? Because I'm Yahweh. Now, that's quite a perspective, isn't it? When Jesus quotes Leviticus 19, that's what he's referring to. He's referring to a system of, of looking after the widow and the orphan, the poor, looking out for other people, putting ourselves uh, on our own desires and aside. So many Christian themes tied up there right from the very beginning. So much of Leviticus 19, if you want to summarize it, and this is certainly how, how the, the ancient Jews saw it, was not simply about giving people their rights, but meeting their needs. That's what Leviticus 19 screams. It's not saying, look, you are, you, you've only got a right to this. It's saying, what do you need? and treating someone as if you were the person in need. Having this empathy, not slandering someone on the basis of what you've heard, because next time it could be you being slandered, and you don't want people to believe what they're saying about you. You, know, you might be the person who's poor, who needs to have food. And then, if you're a wealthy landowner, you don't care about the crops at the edge. I mean, my goodness, the crops at the edge, that's extra money for you, but you're giving up for nothing. Why would you do that? Because you might be the poor person next time. Because you want to think that you are the poor person. You want to think what it's like to be the poor person. And I'm sorry, but sometimes in Christian circles, we are notorious for not putting ourselves in other people's shoes, not thinking about other people in society. And even when we're dealing with people who are, who are trying to justify sin, yes, as Christians, we stand up and say, hey, people, that is sin, that is wrong. No, we can't accept this because we have a holy God. But you know what? I'm still going to care for you. I'm still going to empathize. I'm still going to put myself in your shoes. I'm still going to try and understand your struggles. And I'm still going to try and love you in the midst of it. But we don't do that so often. <coughs> now back to our text. The guy wants to know what's the most important commandment. But what he really wants to know is this is what do you know about the Lord Jesus? 
Are you for the law? Are you with the law? And so Jesus gives him the right answer. Yeah, the Shema. Of course that's important. And in giving that answer, Jesus is saying, I am saying that I am a worshipper of Yahweh. There is one God. I'm not someone who's possessed by Beelzebub, as the Pharisees have said. I'm not someone who is possessed by some demon. I'm a worshipper of God. And I, I subscribe and I hold to this with all of my heart. And he says, and though you haven't asked me this, I'm also telling you how important it is to love your neighbor. Now, why is he doing that? It's going to become really clear next week, but I'll give you a heads up. What he's doing is he's saying, I understand the heart of the law. Next time, we're going to see him condemn the Pharisees and the scribes. And in Matthew's Gospel, where the law and those who keep the law and those who are responsible for the law become so, such a significant thing in that very Jewish Gospel, there's an entire chapter devoted to the condemnation of the Pharisees. We're going to see a briefer one here in Mark next time. But the point is this. The law spoke about loving your neighbour, but the scribes and the Pharisees didn't love their neighbours. And also, Jesus in drawing those two things together is showing they don't love their neighbours because they don't love God. And that's why I took the time, another, well, another reason I took the time, to read through that whole section of Leviticus 19 with you. Because what did he say at the end of each section? I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. So you, what, what that means is, you can't say, Shema, you can't say, Hear, O Israel, hear the Lord God, the Lord is one. You can't say, I am going to worship him with all my heart and I'm going to love him with all of my strength. I'm just totally devoted, totally devoted to Yahweh. And Yahweh says, well, I'm Yahweh, look after the poor. I'm Yahweh, look after the blind and the deaf. I'm Yahweh, make sure you treat your neighbor as you would want to be treated yourself. I'm Yahweh, make sure that loving me means that you love other people. Because if you're not loving other people, you're not loving me. That's linking them together. So what Jesus is doing is he's responding to a single scribe by giving him an answer that can't just be brushed aside. Oh, you believe the Shema? Yeah, we believe the Shema. We say it every day too. What he's doing is he's linking it together with the outworking of the Shema, which is the outworking of loving your neighbor. And if you love God and you love your neighbor, you're covering pretty much the whole law. That's what the parallel account in Matthew says. And so Jesus, if he had not given the second most important commandment as well, he would have allowed the Pharisees and the scribes to continue in their religious hypocrisy where they claimed to love God but didn't love their neighbour, thus showing that they didn't really love God at all. That's why the man answers the way he does. Look at this. The scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. That's important. He's passed the test yet again. They were astounded before, they were impressed with him before, and now he's just declared to be right. Jesus has passed all of the tests. But then he goes on. He says, you have truly said that he is one, and there is no others beside him. Okay? And that's an important statement, because what that's saying is, is what the Pharisees have said about you isn't true. I'm listening to you in my own response. I wonder, I wonder if there's a hint of the reference in Leviticus 19 to slander being hinted at here. Because the Pharisees had slandered Jesus. He's not a follower of Yahweh. He's possessed by a demon. That's how he does his magic tricks. And the scribe is, is inquiring for himself. And he says, okay, you do believe in Yahweh. You do believe in one God. And so what's the scribe doing? The scribe is keeping Leviticus 19 by not simply hearing slander and then standing, what did it say? Slander and then standing against the life of your neighbor. The Pharisees have slandered Jesus and now they're all going to stand against his life. I wonder if this scribe will. He's making a commitment to Leviticus 19 here. He's heard Jesus out. And to love him with all the heart 
and all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself. Okay? So he's got all of those aspects. He says, you've got the right answer. You've put it all together, he says. And he says, so let, let's get the flow of it. To love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one neighbor as yourself is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Oh boy, what a man. Listen, remember the context, okay? Jesus is coming to Jerusalem on a donkey. He hasn't been teaching the Jewish people. He taught them at the beginning. The Pharisees slandered him. He then stopped teaching the Jewish people and he trained up his disciples. <coughs> then he comes into Jerusalem on a donkey declaring himself to be the Messiah in effect because he's fulfilling Zechariah chapter 9. He goes into the temple and presents himself. He then the next day goes back into the temple again. He curses the fig tree which is seen on the way out again to be, to be cursed and dead. Pardon me. And no longer um, able to bear any fruit. And in between, he preaches a message against the temple and against the sacrificial system. He presents himself as the Passover lamb to replace the sacrificial system. That scribe could not, could not have been unaware of the sermon that he preached in the temple that day. The sermon of judgment. He couldn't be unaware of it. He's a scribe. That's his hangout. That's his social circle. That's, that's his life. Jesus has just condemned the sacrificial system. And what does the scribe study for his entire, with his energy? How does he love God and serve God? By studying the law which contains the sacrificial system. So are you opposed to the law, Jesus? Tell me about the law. And Jesus tells him about the law. And he says, I agree with you. Because loving God and that being seen in loving your neighbor... He says that's more important than all the sacrificial system. The sacrificial system is just an outworking of that. God says, sacrifice this. God says, sacrifice that to make you right with God. But what's the point in doing sacrifices to make yourself right with God if you're not loving God in the first place? What's the point in making sacrifices for sin in the temple when you don't love your neighbor? Recognize that theme? It crops up a few times in the New Testament as well. So this man, this scribe, this expert, has understood the law. You say, well, that's pretty obvious. That's what he studied. No, that's not obvious at all. Because most of his colleagues knew the law verbatim. I mean, they had literally, you talk about memorization, they had memorized Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They knew it. They memorized it all word for word in the Hebrew, which wasn't even a language they spoke day to day. They probably had it memorized in the Greek as well. And they didn't speak that so much day to day. Or they may have been bilingual, but they typically spoke in Aramaic. They knew the law well, but they didn't know the law. The Pharisees cheating, the scribes manipulating, the hypocrisy, the pride, the using the system to elevate oneself rather than to love one's neighbor. They didn't get the law. They knew it and they twisted it. They didn't keep it. You get laws like Exodus 22. I might take some time in Exodus next time with you. But in Exodus 22, where uh, verses 22 and 23, there's specific law given for the housing of widows. And if a, something happens to a widow's home. And then the Pharisees had their own laws that basically rendered that inoperative. No, we don't, we don't, we don't do that. Well, you say, whoa, 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 hold a second. How can there be a law from Moses saying about housing widows and how can the Pharisees have laws saying don't house them? How do they get around that? They pray. Kid you not. They pray. Oh, Moses is saying we have a responsibility for these widows. How are we going to practically meet that responsibility? I know, we'll pray. Isn't that something Christians are guilty of? Where there's needs and there's people in need, and there's things that have to be done, and we pray. 
You see, they knew the law, but they didn't know the law. Not really. But this guy did. This guy got it. This guy knows of Jesus' sermon condemning them. He's come to Jesus, and he's one guy. He said, he's looking, I'm impressed with these other answers, Jesus. I've got a question for you, because I really need to know, where do you stand on the whole law? Because you've, you've been there talking about the end of sacrifices and stuff, and, and it makes it sound like you're not a worshipper of Yahweh, because we worship Yahweh by making these sacrifices. Where do you stand? And Jesus says, oh, I love the law. I love the law. We've got to love God with all our hearts, all of our souls, all of our mind, all of our strength. We've got to devote ourselves to him fully, and that it, but that is seen in how we treat other people. And that will bring back remembrance of that sermon in the temple where Jesus condemned them for using the system to their advantage, for, for closing the door on the Gentiles who were the ones who were supposed to be able to have access to God through the court of the Gentiles where there's all these tables and things where they're making money off people and they're, and they're, and they're robbing the poor by oppressing them. Oh, you gotta, oh your, your, your sacrifice isn't good enough. Here, buy one from us now. Your coin's not good enough for the temple. Here, we'll exchange it at this exchange rate robbing and fleecing the poor, the very thing that Leviticus 19 says not to do. And this guy's questions about Jesus, he comes to a fruition. He understands it. But he says it is much more than the all, the, the, the all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. What he's saying is, is he's saying, I understand your sermon in chapter 11. I understand that they've been abusing the system. And I understand that you're not opposed to Yahweh. You're opposed to me and my kind. I understand that you're for God and you're for his law. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. That's quite a statement for several reasons. Firstly, simply because the Jews had been offered the kingdom of God and they turned it down and Jesus stopped making that offer back in chapter 3. He's not making the offer again. But he said to him, Essentially, without the offer, you've gotten really close. I offered it, it was rejected. Because it's rejected, you're under judgment. And now that I've preached judgment, you're starting to recognize that maybe I was right all along. And you're, on, you're, you're a hair's breadth away. What does he need to do? What does he need to do to take that final step? He needs to commit himself to Christ. He can see that Christ is not who he's been portrayed to be. He can see that Christ loves God, but is he prepared to trust himself to him? Is he prepared to take that final step? I hope and I pray that he was. And after that, no one dared ask any questions. He out-experted the experts in the law. He out-sadduceed the Sadducees used their own rules to show them how they were wrong. And he was even clever enough to keep himself, his political nose clean with the Romans. The lamb has been tested. He's been found to be righteous, spotless, and without blemish. And so what's going to happen? I'll tell you what's going to happen. We're going to go from an ans his answers, having been challenged, his answers, to him giving his own challenges. And next time we'll pick up in verse 35. And uh, he will challenge them. And he will challenge them about who he is. You see, we're going to link from this passage to the next one. This man is very close to the kingdom of God. What does he need for that final step? He needs Jesus. So Jesus tells us who he is next time. And then he forces a decision. You believe who I am, Mr. Scribe? All you scribes, you experts in the law, can you see me? Can you see who I am? Or are you going to be under judgment with the rest of the scribes? And so for the end of chapter 12, and the end of this section on the judging of the Lamb, he turns it around 
to judge those who've been judging him. We'll wrap up chapter 12 next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this passage of Scripture. May we be challenged, Lord, to, to love you. We're not under Mosaic law, but boy, we need to love you with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, with all of our minds, with all of our strength. And loving you means that we treat people differently, especially in the church. It means we humble ourselves. We step in other people's shoes, see things through their eyes. Don't hate them. Don't be bitter. Consider others more important than ourselves. These are hard, hard things. But may we truly be your disciples. May we truly live for you. Father, may we not be the fake ones. May we not be like the scribes and Pharisees, having an air of religiosity, but denying the power within. May we be true disciples. Amen.